Assalamu alaikum and welcome to Saturday Morning Life. You're joined by myself, Umar Bhatti, and Noshiman Zafar in the studio. And offline, we have uh, Rohan al and Hamad Khan with us as well. Good morning to all of you and welcome to the show. Um, today, we've got a um, four part show, really. Um, split it up in four parts, sorry. I want to start off with uh, the Jalsa Salana, which is, of course, known as the Ahmadiyya Muslims Annual Convention in the UK. Um, it was a bit different this year, of course. Uh, things opened up and um, the the event was as, was uh, accommodated for as if as it was uh, pre-pandemic. And then, of course, we will also be going into the news of uh, the weekly news, the roundup of uh, what was happened throughout the week. And also, we've got two topics for you, which we want to discuss with you and share with you, which is the Commonwealth, the idea, uh, because we just recently had the Commonwealth game. And it's I think it's a good time to look at what actually is the Commonwealth. I think a lot of people might be sort of confused. Uh, there are different rules about it and different regulations uh, as to why, you know, why can't some other countries take part and, you know, uh, that would be sort of an interesting historical background to check as to w- what is the Commonwealth, pretty much. And then, lastly, of course, what you haven't heard, uh, what you have been hearing, sorry, uh, throughout uh, this sort of period since uh, since the Ukraine war and even before that, is the fact of the cost of living crisis, which is really squeezing people right now, and it might well be squeezing you even more and we'll be hopefully try to give you some practical solutions if there may be but also look into deeper as to some energy companies making a huge amount of profits uh, but again let's start with our first um, item on the agenda which is uh, the Jalsa Salana the annual convention on the Muslim community and we're going to hand over to Rohan Lachima. Rohan the floor is yours Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. And good morning to all listeners and the team. Um, yeah, so as Umar mentioned, last weekend we had our Joseph Solana UK, which is the annual convention of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community that occurs on a yearly basis. But I can probably speak for everyone when I say that this is the highlight of my year. And this is something that we look forward to every year and then when it comes and goes it goes by in a flash and uh, for a couple of weeks at least we all feel the what we refer to the post delta blues um so in, in light of that i thought it would be a good idea for us to have some reflections of the jealousy that we had last weekend um to understand the purpose more and what it means to us on a personal basis so what we did what we what we thought um are the important aspects to it etc um, for me personally, uh, Joseph has a point where I am quite busy when it comes to responsibilities and duties. So I know for the rest of you as well, you would know about this, is that um, one thing we do, is one, one thing that makes the Jalsa, um so special and important is the fact that most of the people, majority of the people who are taking part or who are helping out in set up are volunteers. And... Uh, we share out responsibilities and duties in this way as well, where there's hundreds of departments or roles, I mean, um, that are handed out within members of the community to carry out. Um, and in light of that, you end up doing duties which you professionally or in your outside in your job world, you don't actually have any experience in, but you learn as you go on the job. So, for example, for myself, um, I do almost something different every year. So last year I was doing... Um, the water supply duty, so that, that means the 
um, setting up a network and uh, providing water around site for about um, over 30,000 people. And this year I was working um, under security. So security is obviously a very, very big department because there's so many different aspects that you need to provide security to. But this is a good, good um, experience for me as well. Um, I, think, I think it's one experience where it requires a lot of patience because you end up doing six to eight hours or something like that shift where sometimes you might even be standing alone overnight or you, you'd be, you'd be um, having to deal with people in a way where you have to be kind um, and you have to be respond patient in the sense that they might not like what you're telling them. So I think that was good. And also I was helping out. So I make sure that I do something during the day and during the night. I was also helping out in the accommodation department because a lot of people stay over on site as well, um, since they're traveling from long distances. Obviously, this year we had uh, just a UK-based Chelsea, meaning that we didn't have as many international guests as we usually have, but there was still quite a lot of people obviously traveling from the north. Um, and even some people from London who needed to stay over because of the duties and work that they were doing, um, which meant that we still had a lot of people on site. And my responsibility is one to manage this, to see who's coming on site, who wants to stay, and also to arrange their accommodation to make sure that whoever wants to stay over um, can do so, then also providing them bedding, mattresses, and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I think that part is really, really rewarding when it comes to the JOSA, um, being able to provide for the guests and also to see their reactions and also receive their prayers um, towards the end of JOSA as well. So. I also want to hear from you guys um, what you got up to, Joseph. I know it's a period where everyone gets quite busy, and I remember seeing some of you briefly, but I don't think we really had a time to chat. Um, so, Umar, Umar, tell me more about your Joseph experience and what you did. Yeah, thank you for that, Rahan. Um, yeah, my Joseph experience, I think, um, if you've put it pretty well, we all look forward to it every year, and, you know, I am right now in my Joseph Blues where you miss... Uh, doing a lot of work and sometimes you just do work which you thought you couldn't even do you know I don't do DIY at home but at JELSA I end up doing a bit of DIY so you know I feel feel a bit accomplished when I when I come to the JELSA and uh, get my hands dirty but yeah my uh, the where, where I was volunteering uh, during JELSA was with the press and media so the work is of course uh, quite uh, drastically different compared to uh, uh to yours which is which which was security and uh my work of course starts not just uh, uh it, it starts with just like with everyone else uh, you, you are a couple of weeks before you are um calling pre- uh, journalists creating press releases contacting your local mem- members in case they they can do interviews and it's all about promoting what jalsa is to people who have not heard it and it's quite um uh, quite meaningful uh, to see that when people hear about Jalsa, they are quite stunned at the fact that there are so many volunteers working around the clock trying to set up this Jalsa. Of course, we have some contractors which uh, which uh, we we have to have, such as building the huge marquees which you see on the if you type in the Jalsa Salana on Google, you'll see how huge I mean. And uh, but the main main part of the work, the main limb of the work is with a, a volunteer. So people most are always um, impressed by the scale of it. But not just uh, promoting Jalsa, but promoting the message of what uh, His Holiness Hazem is a Masur Ahmed, the fifth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, is also 
giving you know his fi- uh, he 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 has five speeches two on Friday two on Saturday and one the closing speech on Sunday they're trying to promote that so in that way uh, the uh, I've been I've been with the press and media team for quite a long time now I would say a good five years and even though it was it it, it has been accommodated for thirty thousand plus. Uh, uh, we still have been able to get, uh, by the grace of God, uh, a decent amount of coverage uh, for the Jalsa, uh, be it on uh, national, international, or even local or regional uh, papers and radios. So it's, of course, an immense blessing that we uh, that you uh, that one is able to actually uh, take part in duties like this. Because if you think about it. I my background is nowhere near, or at least when I was studying, was no nowhere near press and media. I would never have thought I would be interacting with uh, journalists uh, uh, and people in the press at all. Uh, but of course, hopefully, when things uh, grow, uh, we, we, when things uh, open up more uh, at the Jalsa, hopefully next year, if if that if that is uh, if that is allowed, then you know we'll be welcoming the guests of the Promised Messiah, and that is the uh, ultimate goal for all of us. So um, my jalsa in 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 that summary was pretty pretty great. It was a, um, a spiritually uh, reboosting. Yep, totally agree with you, Mark. And I think you really emphasised that point again that you end up doing work at jalsa, which you normally never think about, or you, it's not it's not related to your work um, field of work. Um, there was actually so the team that are on site to do waste management. So I'm I'm, I'm saying collecting the rubbish and the bins. It's actually a team of um, accountants and bankers, even investment bankers. And they take out um, their three days. In fact, they actually had a BBC interview last year as well of that team, um, who, who are people who are well off when it comes to their daily lives and jobs. But when it comes to JELSA, they have no problem in letting go of all of that and volunteering in whatever department that comes. And I think that is the importance of holiness, that whenever you do any duty, you should not think that it is below you, or you should not regard one duty as being um, more worthful um, than another, because all of them are as important, and without any of them, the rest of it would not be possible. Um, going on to Noshe, Noshe, tell us more about your job experience. Yeah, I had a, I had a bit of a busy one this year, so I've been uh, part of the fire safety team for five years now. Um, so, as the name suggests, we're sort of responsible for preventing uh, fires taking place in the first place. Uh, and if God forbid one does break out, uh, sort of dealing with it and resolving uh, it in sort of uh, as quick and efficient manner as possible to uh, prevent the need to to evacuate the entire site. So, um, yeah, in in the context of of sort of a heat wave just before the Jalsa, uh, and obviously we're straight into another one straight after. We've had quite an extended period of dry hot weather. Um, and and the Jalsa itself, uh, for our listeners who, who might not be aware, takes place uh, on on a farm site in in Hampshire. Um, so so normally uh, throughout the year, when when the Jalsa is not in town, uh, the same land that we're using to to uh, host our our event on is usually a, a pasture land for for livestock. Um, so so you can imagine all sorts of grass, trees, all that good stuff. Um, but in in the context of this year, yeah, we had. Uh, Quite quite a few challenges, uh, and and by the grace of God, no fires at all. We were able to uh, to avoid those altogether. Um, but but sort of it ke- it keeps you on your toes really. Um, sort of going around the site, making sure things like electrical connections are are being used in a safe way. Uh, we've got uh, 
uh, market stall sellers who, who might be using gas to cook food, for example, uh, making sure those gas connections are safe. And, and sort of uh, the, the main one really is uh, if, if there are any people who, who are smoking on site, um, it's, always a, it's always a challenge. Sort of, uh, we, we try and discourage people from smoking at all if possible, but at the same time recognize if you are a long-term smoker, it's not possible necessarily to... Uh, to, to just quit your habit for, for three days for the gel set itself. Um, so in that case, it's really a case of providing education, offering people alternative safe areas to smoke in places where we've created designated smoking zones, uh, which sort of have fire prevention uh, methods being used. Because um, obviously, as you can imagine, sort of those uh, ashes from a cigarette on, straight onto dry grass can cause uh, quite a major incident particularly if, if people are smoking sort of in slightly hidden places because it might be quite a long time till we detect that fire um, but yeah so it it's something that I've sort of become very experienced with um, and and sort of as always great team to work with sort of really great camaraderie and uh, it's it's not an easy job um, particularly when it's hot like it was this year Umar is looking at me and he's realized I've, I've sort of tanned about f- five shades since he last saw me last month um yeah so we were out there sort of 12 hours a day or something uh, again shift based but but even then sort of with a smallish team you end up putting in a lot of hours but but very very rewarding uh, particularly when you get to the end of it and and realize uh, we've done a successful job by the grace of god um and yeah sort of uh, uh at the end of it really it's just a case of w- we know we're just a small group of people doing playing our part just like everyone else at the jalsa yeah, totally agree, Nashay. And I remember I, see, I remember seeing a lot of your team members just running around site uh, throughout Jalsa. Um, and like you mentioned, it's, it's a very, very important team, especially this year with the dry spells going on. And I remember we had a um, fire drill as well with your team, which is very, very important. So you guys ensure that people know what to do. Um, and uh, we, we also, actually, I remember for I think it was a Friday before. So the Holy His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Sulaiman Ahmed advised us um, to try reduce our water usage as well throughout um, Jalsa, simply for this purpose again for the dry spells that are going on. Um, but like we just mentioned, like I just mentioned just before, um, not sure you went is that um, every duty we do or everything we do has just as much importance. And to what you just mentioned is also something which is very very different what Umar and I did, but um, holds a lot, a lot of value where we're even talking about human lives coming into consideration. Um, going on to our last person who's on the call right now, um, Hamad, are you there? Hello, uh, yes, I'm going to start, yeah. Hamad, um, would you like to share your experiences as well? No, wait, you did, I don't think I saw you doing Delta, so I'm quite interested in knowing um, what you're up to. Well, I sort of tucked myself away. Um, Usually we have, uh, I'm part of the outreach um, department um, and that's quite um, a, bit, a big duty. And I was just thinking about how this year's Jalsa felt different from previous years. Obviously I felt incredibly and immensely privileged to be able to, um, you know, experience Jalsa. But then there was also some aspect where I felt um, how Jalsa usually is and um, what was essentially missing but not in a sort of negative way but in a way that I'm sort of hoping for next year um, and that's particularly the guests so it's the external guests the journalists people who are interested um, in the Ahmadiyya community either they are friends neighbours colleagues from work academics 
government ministers and to be able to receive them and just see through their eyes um, just the immensity of what Jalsa is, just a congregation of 30,000 Muslims on a farm and how impossible it seems, but how real it becomes in just three days. Um, it's, it's, it's a real privilege in usual years to see that. And so that was missed. I missed that very much. Um, but I, I, I still carried on with our duty that we had with um, an exhibition that we hold every year um, on Islam, the Quran and science, and um, just talking more about um, basically what, what Islam means in the modern world. And so that was a really nice exhib- exhibition to be a part of. Um, and so I was tucked away in a tent there for, for most of the three days. But, it, it, I, it, you know, it's just, the per- like you said, the purpose of Jalsa is to spiritually revive, reboost and renew um, your sense of faith. And, you know, we're always blessed to have that experience every year, albeit for the past, you know, for me, I didn't attend any of the interim Jalsas um, during COVID. So it was a three-year break for me. And you see the importance of it, not just individually, but as a community. I was at one point going around and interviewing everyone and I was asking what is the best thing um, about, uh, you know, Islam today. It was a particular question for an exhibition. And a lot, every, nearly, invariably everyone said unity, cohesion, community. And then they looked around and said this, essentially. Um, and I think that's what a lot of people were missing and that's what a lot of people value in Islam as a religion, but also I mean, this is very unique to the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. You won't necessarily see something like this outside of our community, and it just made me more thankful. Very, very good point you raised there, and actually something that I wanted to mention and I've been reflecting on as well. Um, I'm sure you guys would have heard the Friday sermon yesterday of His Holiness Hazrat where he went through a review and the benefits actually that we saw from Judge Salona this year. Uh, and he, t- he spoke specifically about the impact and the outreach that we got from the Jalsa um, around the world. And then it made me go back and reflect on the actual purpose of the Jalsa and what the promised Messiah who initiated the Jalsa. So the first ever Jalsa happened in, I believe, December 1891. Um, and at that time, there was only 75 people who attended the first Jalsa and Guardian. Um, and he mentioned in 1892, the year after that, the purpose of this convention of the Jalsa is so that people who attend, the Jamaat members, they can experience religious benefits, um, that they may improve and enha- enhance their knowledge. Um, and secondarily, it will also help in terms of outreach and spreading the message of Islam and fostering mutual brotherhood amongst members of the community. And then it, I came back to modern day and I thought about myself, okay, have I witnessed these different purposes that I mentioned? I can say for a fact, for certain things, for example, when it comes to learning knowledge and religious benefits, I have no doubt that this is the case every single year. You know, every time you go to Jalsa, you have the opportunity to pray in congregation, which is emphasized a lot to Islam. And also you get to meet brothers, some new faces who have joined the community and simply hearing their stories is enough to boost your faith as well. And also some previous brothers. Um, and I, I, can, you, I can probably agree, you guys will probably agree with me as well that there are certain faces that you'd only ever see at Jalsa. You know, you see them once a year simply because you don't cross paths throughout the rest of the year. But you see them at Jalsa, but it does not feel any different. And you feel like they are your brothers, your best friends. And, it, and uh, that is how it has always been. So you also see that happening. Um, and you also gain knowledge 
from the speeches of um, Hazur Sahazul, um, His Holiness, um, spoke about a lot about, um, well, firstly, his first address was about how if you do want to bring about a change in the world, it has to come from personal, spiritual or moral reformation, which is very, very true. And we all know that. And I think that was, again, a thing that boosted our faith. And then he spoke about the different women in the history of Islam um, as a way of showing role models and how the misconception about women in Islam is not true and how we have people who were leaders and warriors even um, amongst our women. And also on the last day he spoke about the relationship between women and men and the rights that they have over each other, which again is very, very relevant in this day and age. And also helped me learn a lot of new things which I did not know before. But the last thing, which, like I mentioned, His Holiness spoke about yesterday, was the outreach. And this is something also, all the words of the Promised Messiah in regards to the purpose of the Jalsa have been clearly fulfilled. And if I was to just mention some stats and figures which I mentioned yesterday, is that we know that the Jalsa is normally international and we have people from all around the world attending. But we saw a benefit over um, the pandemic is that we've expanded much more in our use of technology um, and uh, our virtual accessibility to each other. And just through that, the JALSA was attended by 53 countries. So they had actually joined in with their live streams and we're watching into the JALSA, um, which I think is absolutely amazing. Um, and also we had, we were obviously limited in the guests we could invite, but still in terms of press and media, we were able to get eight websites uh, published. So I'm talking about BBC, ITV, Metro, so some of the big ones. And with those, we simply, we got, with the media channels, we got a reach of 20 million people alone, um, as well as 14 articles being published by the media with a readership of 1.2 million, 32 TV programs covering it, 33 radio programs covering JOSA. Um, and also, I. One thing we have is we have our own personal TV channels, right? So we've got MTA, Muslim TV, Ahmadiyya, International, Africa, Europe. We've got a lot of different branches of this. Um, Arabia as well. Let's not forget that one. And uh, it's not just those channels alone. So in Africa, I only found out about this recently, which is amazing, is that MTA Africa does not only um, show it on their own channel, but they actually, in that period that the programs are going on, get permission or are able to show the proceedings on other channels as well. So I found out that MTA Africa reports the Jalsa Sunana on 20 TV channels in Africa. And we're talking about some of the big, big TV channels, which means that they reach 35 million people um, across the Jalsa Sunana. Apart from that, we have a lot of other publications. We've got a review of religions. Um, Jalsa connecting our press and media team, I think, were absolutely amazing this year. So, Umar, um, big shout out to you. I think I love some of the content you guys put out, the interviews you guys had. Um, and uh, through that alone, with the, tw with the videos and social media posts, we were able to reach 300,000 people as well. Um, and I think this really, really proves that, uh, and I was reflect like, this is what my reflection ended up with, it was that Joseph is not only important for our spiritual boost and our reformation as members of the community, but it's also very, very important for guiding um, more truth seekers to the Jamaat, to the community as well, so people are able to see the light and also removing the misconceptions about Islam. You know, I saw a journalist who has good relationships with the community, and uh, there was an article released by Channel 4 or such a TV program which criticized some of the... Um, 
notions or ideas around women in Islam and actually mentioned the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in the article as well. But this journalist, um, who is a woman herself, had attended one of her jalsas. And simply from attending that jalsa and seeing what actually happens here, she was able to see that most of that was not true what was being mentioned. And she herself refuted the other journalist and said that, no, I've been to their community event. I've seen from personal experience that this is what actually happens. And I've met His Holiness, Mr. Masroor Ahmed, um, and this is what the man is like. So I think this is very, very important in getting the outreach and getting people to look into the community and seeing what true Islam really is like. Thank you for that, um, <clears throat> Rohan. Um, really, um, Jalsa Salana is uh, one of the biggest uh, and largest events in the calendar of Ahmadiyya Muslims. Um, of course, um, the UK, because it hosts the, uh, it's blessed to be hosting the Caliph of the time, Hazrat Mirza Muslim, the fifth Caliph of Ahmadiyya Muslim community. All eyes are shunned towards, all eyes, sorry, are looked to, uh, looked at here in the UK. Although this year it was a uh, still sort of down, downscaled uh, uh, in terms of international numbers, uh, we hope that next year uh, we can see it back on its original scale, closer to 35,000 plus people and uh, again uh, i think we can all agree that it is spiritually uh, enhancing and it's it's sort of a a spiritual drug you can say really uh, to attend mm-hmm. uh, to to attend Jalsa so thank you for that uh, Rohan and uh, if you do have any comments to make in terms of Jalsa and uh, of our show show right now you can participate on the phone uh, by calling 0208 687 7878 or by tweeting us at Voice of Islam UK we'll now take a short break uh, uh, for to, for 10.30 and we'll be back with the news roundup uh, we hope you stick with us and come back after a short break selections from the writings of the promised messiah upon whom be peace the founder of the Ahmadiyya movement in Islam God is the light of the heavens and the earth every light that is seen be it high or low whether it belongs to souls or pertains to bodies or be it substantive or attributive whether hidden or evident be it subjective or objective it is a mere bounty of His grace. This is a sign which indicates that the bounties of Allah encompass everything. He is the source of all grace and is the ultimate cause of every light, the fountainhead of all mercies. His being is the support of the universe and is the refuge of all, high and low. He it is who brought everything out of the darkness of nothingness and bestowed upon everything the mantle of being. No being other than He exists by itself or is eternal. All other beings are recipients of His grace, earth and heaven, man and beast, stones and trees, souls and bodies. All are sustained by His grace. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. 
Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to Saturday Morning Life here, Jamal Masaf Umbati and Nushriman Zafar in the studio. And uh, remotely, we have uh, Nurhan Alachima and Hamad Khan. And w- with us also, we should have now Takrim Malik. So, welcome all again, everyone. <coughs> We'll go into uh, our news round now. Uh, we've got quite a few news. Uh, news has been uh, quite hot this week, uh, just like the weather. So um, it's going to stay that way for quite a considerable time. But the weather will be leaving us next week with a, a bit of rain, hopefully, which will, uh, which Rahan will talk about, hopefully, uh, in regards to drought. But first of all, we're going to start with a serious story, and Hamad has got that for us. Hamad, please share with us. Yep. So yesterday on the news, this recently broke out just actually hours ago, you could say not less than 24 hours. Salman Rushdie, um, a famous author, is now on a ventilator after being stabbed on stage um, at a writing event in New York. Uh, So the famous author was in Western New York um, and the police have identified um, the suspect. Uh, the author was very well known for actually receiving death threats since the 1980s, particularly um, after a fatwa was uh, written against him um, and announced against him by the then leader of uh, the Iranian state, uh, Al-Khamini. And since then, he's been receiving a barrage of complaints, deplatforming and uh, death threats. So Rushdie, 75, was taken into surgery just a few hours ago, and um, a, a reporter who was at the event witnessed a man storm the stage um, and began assaulting Rushdie. Reports initially said that they weren't sure whether uh, the author Salman Rushdie was stabbed or whether he was assaulted, um, but now um, it has been released that it seems as if uh, uh, Salman Rushdie would unfortunately lose an eye and he's um, in ICU and it has been his liver has been stabbed multiple times and um, he's suffered some severe injuries with a severed nerve also. It's brought into question the issue about acting on, you know, your your own opinions and where freedom of uh, speech lies. So it was interesting to see some tweets. So Nigella Lawson was his friend. He said, it's such fucking news. Um, I'm in distraught. This is horrific. The president of France, Emmanuel Macron, tweeted which is quite controversial, I'd say, but he said for the last 33 years, Salman Rushdie has symbolized freedom and the fight against obscurantism, which is the free dissemination of knowledge. Uh, Hatred and barbarism have just struck him so cowardly. His struggle is ours and universal. Today, more than ever, we are at his side. Uh, Salman Rushdie has been known for being somewhat controversial in some of his writings, particularly uh, in religious spheres. But um, I, I think it just, goes to stand that it, it doesn't validate any sort of hatred or um, particularly any form of attack. So our thoughts are with him. Um, our thoughts are with um, the people at the event. There was someone else who also suffered an injury. Um, and we hope that justice is brought swiftly upon the attacker as well. Yes, thank you for that. Uh, very um, concerning news, of course, coming from America. Uh, that is of the famous author Salman Rushdie. We hope and pray he um, makes a speedy recovery, but first or survives. Um, so thank you for that, Hamad. Uh, next up, we're going to go to Rohan. Uh, Rohan, tell us about the uh, hot weather, which has been causing some issue. Mm, yep, we've probably already mentioned this at least 10 times today already, for half an hour. But a couple of days ago, from yesterday even, I saw a satellite image of the UK, and it showed how dry 
a lot of our land, that a lot of the areas have come. And it was quite shocking for me, which is why I actually want to mention this today. Um, so large parts of South, Central and Eastern England mainly have been declared as drought areas at the moment. And the area that has been declared is increasing as we speak. And this is actually the driest summer that we've had in 50 years, which is, which is quite um, frightening. And, and uh, what we're currently ensuring, or the government ensuring, is that the essential supplies that we have of water are kept safe. Um, and we've already seen some restrictions being put in by water companies. And I'm sure you would have heard a lot of the news that are coming in with rivers drying up and how this is affecting wildlife as well, not only in the UK, but across a lot of areas of Europe as well. Um, so, considering London, London would come under this drought area, um, East Midlands, um, all the way down to Southampton, Isle of Wight, and up to Lincolnshire. So, it's a big, big, large, large area which is being covered. And we all know that a drought is related to a lack of water. And I'm sure we can tell that this is because of the lack of rainfall, which we haven't really seen um, a lot in recent days. And we've got a lack of river flows groundwater levels, reservoir levels, and dryness of soil as well, which um, is affecting our plant life too. <clears throat> so I think it's important to understand specifically around what's happened throughout the rest of the year as well. Um, it's not just because we haven't had rain this month or last month, and there's been two or three weekends of heat waves. It's actually the case in the first three months of this year. Um, our rainfall in England was down by 26%, and in Wales also down by 22% compared to the average what we usually have, which is very, very low. <clears throat> so since then, we've already had uh, reduced river flows, which were actually regarded as being exceptionally low, um, lower than the average by um, experts. And in July, we had even worse case where not only was it temperature records broken, but rainfall was also down by 76% compared to what we usually have, um, which has made things, things have been made worse by the overconsumption of water, um, with 28% uh, of our underground water sources also being used, as the government says. <clears throat> For this reason, as you would know, a couple of weeks ago, I think now, um, it's uh, or last week or so, we had our host pipe ban, which, is, which was initiated. And it was mentioned that anyone who breaks this rule could be hit with a fine of £1,000 at least. Um, and keeping that in mind, which is why we earlier mentioned as well that we were trying to reduce the amount of water consumption at Joseph Solana. And I can tell you the fact that um, as the water supply team would ensure that they would reduce the pressure um, in certain areas throughout the Joseph, um, considering where the flow of people was more or less. Um, and overnight as well, they were reduced the amount of water that was coming out to save um, the water that was being used. So this is very, very important. So we can do things on a personal level, but also when it comes to organizations, companies, etc., they can also make an impact and reduce our water usage. Um, so what some water companies are trying to do right now, and I'm telling you this because we are thinking of solutions and benefits of things we can take out from this, is that water companies have been asked to take more water than usual from rivers um, rather than our usual sources. And uh, even river things. And what would you have to then keep in mind is that you have to do your desalination plant to remove the salt which is present in the water and make it drinkable. Um, and also on a personal 
usage at home. We should also keep in mind how this is not only affecting um, wildlife, our um, land, but also people around us. We should try to reduce the amount of water we use as much as possible. But of course, keeping yourself hydrated as much as you can, because currently the drought is killing fish and creating water pollution, is causing crop failure. And we have also seen wildfires, which are not common at all in the UK. So I'd say everyone keep safe, apply your sunscreen for, I hope this is the last weekend. And as Omar mentioned, it looks like we have um, some rain coming in next week. So hopefully that is the case and we can get past this. Because I was reading this morning that every day that passes makes things worse. Um, and we'd be, we'd be in, in a way in danger when it comes to this being longer than expected. Um, some of the things that the government has said actually we can do is you take shorter showers. I think that's a bit of common sense when it comes to reducing the water usage. Use mm. shorter showers, turn off your taps when you're not using them or when you're simply just washing or brushing your teeth, etc. Yeah. Um, when you're using washing machine and dishwashers, make sure they're fully loaded so you're not wasting too much water. And also fix leaks which you have around the house as well, because on average leaks waste around 400 liters per day, which is which is quite a lot. Yeah. So, like I mentioned, keep safe, everyone, um, and hopefully we can have some more positive news around this next week. Uh, we hope to. Uh, thank you for that, Roshan. Um, the drought, something which hopefully um, really questions us actually if we are going to see this even more increasingly in the coming years uh, with uh, climate change, um, with uh, us not probably taking the environment seriously. Uh, you, you, are, you are directed towards uh, thinking if we can, if we will be, be seeing this even more. I think uh, last night, just I was um, um, going to bed, I was scrolling through my Instagram and something from DW News came up forward and uh, it was actually also giving up, uh, talking about how... Um, Europe, Europe's rivers were drying up as well. Uh, it's the worst since uh, f- uh, 500 years, actually. So um, there is a real concern around this. And with the UK, of course, and around Europe facing the hottest summer on record, uh, it really does beg uh, to question you, uh, what are we going to do and what is going to happen next in the coming years? And... Uh, is climate change real? <laughs> uh, that's what people keep on uh, debating about. But in any case, uh, thank you for that and thanks for giving the practical solution, Rohan. Uh, next, uh, we'll go to uh, Noshivan, who's got uh, more interesting stories around um, the petrol prices. Yeah, so I think that this is uh, this one's quite interesting on, in the context of um, obviously what we've just discussed around drought. I think that there's obviously quite a clear link between our use of fossil fuels and and sort of the effect it's had on on the climate um and i think that that is probably an interesting discussion for another time um but in terms of the here and the now i un, until the majority of people have a viable alternative we we do depend on on fossil fuels for our day-to-day lives whether that be directly for, for i.e for our own cars or, or indirectly whether that's to, to generate electricity or to transport the food into the stores that we we, we need to, to eat um so petrol prices apparently according to the AA um are are currently on track uh, to dip below 1 pound 60 a liter uh, in 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 the coming days and weeks following a, a significant reduction in the wholesale price of fuel um so the wholesale price of fuel has now fallen 30 
30p since uh, it peaked in in June. Um, and we know, of course, uh, while fuel sellers are, are are very quick to raise their prices, they can lag a bit in terms of of bringing the cost back down again. Uh, some of that is is the fact that their model is they they usually buy their fuel up to two years in advance. Uh, so so the prices that they uh, are paying today won't necessarily be be turned into fuel you or I use until 2024, for example. Um, because oil is bought in futures basically um, but 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 what they'll do is they'll charge you today's wholesale price and convert that into a price today for you um, but I think as I mentioned a lot of us do depend on our cars or or, or at the very least depend on on things in stores um, which are usually transported by truck which use that same sort of fuel with with the prices coming down obviously um, it's good news, particularly in, in the context of this co- uh, cost of living crisis that we're currently going through. Uh, massive levels of inflation, the highest we've seen since the 1970s um, I- in the UK at the moment. Uh, and if we just sort of think back uh, to sort of towards the beginning of the year, sort of around, I think it was around February time, just before the Ukraine uh, war broke out, we were being told to expect higher prices at the shops due to increasing fuel prices. Now, obviously, the the story and the lines that we were told through the news after the war broke out changed to say it's all the war's fault, but prices were already on the up before the before the conflict uh, started. Um, so, irrespective of sort of the politics or, or the conflicts going on elsewhere in the world, um, I think for consumers uh, and for for ordinary people cost of fuel coming down is good news um, it doesn't necessarily mean we need to be using our cars more just because we can I think uh, some of us probably in, in recent weeks have probably uh, not necessarily out of choice but a lot of people probably have have really reconsidered their use of cars particularly for shorter local journeys um, and, and possibly made some positive changes in, in that area and if, if you're one of those people then it's probably a good idea to continue with that where you can if nothing else you're saving money right even if uh, you, you're not particularly personally concerned about the environmental impact which I think it's quite easy to understate on a on on an individual level, but if we all make our small changes, it, it adds up to a big big consequence overall. Um, so the the price of fuel has already dri- dipped below one pound sixty a litre in Belfast. Um, the AA believes we're on track to reach that number in the mainland UK within weeks. So the average in the UK at the moment is one hundred and seventy five point two pence. Uh, Umar and I were discussing this morning where we're based uh, sort of in south and southwest London uh, that we seem to have generally slightly cheaper rates in, in my area cheapest I saw was 173.9 Umar I think it was 171.9 um, so, so obviously prices are coming down I know we all had that, that horrific set of prices just a few weeks ago where they were just about touching £2 a litre for petrol and, uh, and a bit over for diesel um, but I think uh, in the context of obviously the cost of living, I think while we're, while we're saving on, on fuel, I think now is probably time for government to get involved and actually tackle gas and electricity prices. That's something we will definitely be talking about later in the show, though. Yes, petrol prices, uh, something which I think took everyone by the storm, at least not 
it was that drastically and that violently it went up nearly two pounds <coughs> a litre, but it did actually go two pounds a litre for diesel, didn't it? In some places. Yeah, uh, there were places that were uh, topping £2.50 a litre for diesel, admittedly slightly more remote places or places mm. such as motorway service stations, which are usually a bit more expensive, but yeah, as in it was it was highly unusual prices for the UK. Very unusual. Um, I think everyone felt the burden. Um, a lot of people I know started looking around for bikes to try and uh, cut their journeys or, you know, get themselves a bit healthy as well. So uh, if you are continuing to use the bike or going on a walk or using public transport, should continue to do so. You, you will save a bit more money. But as prices are coming lower, people will tend to come off uh, their sort of difficult moments and start to ease back into uh, this. Absolutely. I think especially um, one, once we come out of the heat wave in a few months' time, obviously, we'll be approaching the winter. Mm. If it's anything like the last few winters, it might be quite mild. But if it's if it's not like that, it could be potentially severe. And again, in that in those sorts of weathers, I know a lot of people are quite keen to, to get back in their warm, comfortable cars. Uh, so hopefully that might be a little bit less difficult than it was last year. Indeed. So uh, thank you for that, Noshe. Uh, and that was Noshe with um, the petrol crisis. And lastly, we have um, uh, Takrim. Takrim, um, what new story do you have for us today? So actually, um, this new story was uh, almost inspired by our planning for the, the family annual trip to Germany. Um, and as we were planning our flights back, um, you know, I, I looked at the the train tickets from Manchester back to Bradford and, you know, they were sky high. And I was wondering why this was, because, you know, usually they're quite, it's not so far away. And that's when I went on the news and I realised, actually, on Friday, on Thursday and Saturday, um, 18th and 20th of August, more than 40,000 railway workers are going on strike. Um, and so, you know, that got me thinking and, you know, that's led, led me to explore this new story a little bit more. So, essentially, um, the RMT or uh, the nine rail companies who are members of uh, this uh, Aslef union, they're going to go on strike um, over pay issues. And uh, so almost all train operators in the UK pretty much are going to be affected because this strike involves network rail staff who maintain the railways in England, Scotland and Wales. So it's going to be, you know, from the underground all the way to Great Western Railway, LNER, Northern Trains, Thameslink, all these kind of different services are going to be affected. So this, I think probably going to be one of the the biggest uh, strike actions we've seen in recent years. And the reason for this is that the union says that the drivers need a pay rise. Um, and again, I mean, everything almost seems to come back to the recent crisis that we're having, this rising cost of living crisis. Um, and their argument is that members have effectively had a pay cut in recent years. Um, now, Network Rail says that they've offered a recent pay offer, pay increase of over 5%. But this is, again, dependent on workers accepting modernization reforms. And the the union says that first of all, this is a very paltry sum, um, and you know nowhere near enough to cover the the costs going to be incurred by inflation and so on and so forth. And actually, the real terms pay cut. And second of all, the plans for modernisation are going to alienate um, and eliminate a lot more workers. Furthermore, the union claims that Network Rail has plans to cut two and a half thousand maintenance jobs. Um, and this is because uh, you know the network 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 rail. Um, has a mission to save two, two billion pounds over the next two years. Now, I was having a little bit more look into this, and uh, I had found an interesting statistic. It says that of the main reasons why people use a train in England in 2020, that is, 37 percent of journeys were for commuting purposes, 28 percent were for leisure, and 16 percent were for shopping, and the rest are, are minuscule. 
Um, but it's interesting that almost 40% of all train journeys in the UK are done for commuting purposes. But I think that just explains, that just shows how crucial the railway services are for our economy and for ensuring people get to work and get to work on time, actually. And living in London, from my own experience uh, over the past year, we had a few underground strikes. And I know on those days we had some training days and people were turning up two hours late. The reason being was that the underground wasn't working or even certain stations or certain lines weren't operating on the underground. And what this actually has, people might say, you know, that's only one form of service. Why don't you take the bus? So, so forth. Well, actually, I found another news article explaining how these rail strikes are causing massive, massive bus delays, actually, as well. And that is something that I have experienced myself as well. Like I said, on those trading days, people were taking the bus, but the bus, which usually took half an hour, 45 minutes, was now taking an hour and a half, two hours, so on and so forth. Um, <clears throat> so, again, the knock-on effects of this train strike is not just going to be for the railway workers or for the unions or even for just commuters, as we, as we might expect, but on the economy itself, what you're going to see is a, is a delay, is a delay in people getting to work, a delay in people being in work, and that's going to lead to decreased productivity and all of the local effects that come to it. And really, in an economy where we have uh, such a rising inflation, a cost of living crisis, it's not something they want to be seeing. And it's really almost, this is very, very much uh, not ideal um, for the situation that we have at the moment. Um, some of you might be wondering as well, some of, some of our viewers, that how much do railway worker salaries, how much are they paid? Um, whether, you know, they might, ha might want to have an insight to that. And so the Office for National Statistics uh, has estimated that the average salary of rail workers is £43,000, so And without drivers included, it's about £36,800. And actually, we've seen, uh, we've, we've seen uh, an increase uh, in recent years from 2011 to 2021. So in the past 10 years, uh, train and tram drivers have seen almost an increase of about £15,000, £16,000 increase in, the, in their wage, average wage. And yes, sorry to our listeners. Um, not sure how many of you guys are viewing, but I'm sure all of you are listening. Uh, um, and so finally, I'd just like to, for the benefit of our listeners, um, can you get a refund if there's a strike? And again, that is a question that I was asking the other day as well. And so apparently uh, different scenarios and different ticket types, um, different uh, train stations have different uh, rules on this, but you are entitled to a refund if your train is cancelled, delayed, or rescheduled. Um, so, you know, if you guys have booked uh, train tickets on those days and you are planning on travelling on those days, this might be something to keep in mind. Um, and hopefully, I'm hoping that when I come back from Germany on Saturday, I'll be able to find my, my way back home. Um, if not, I might have to walk it. Actually, that brings me on before I finish. Uh, Moshe Saab said something a little bit earlier. Um, which I found interesting uh, regarding the regarding using bikes and increase increasing our use of exercise. I think this is this is another reason why we should be uh, cycling a little bit more and maybe walking a little bit more as well. Is because public transport, as you can see, is not is not being the most reliable. And by using uh, by using our bike and you know by walking, what we're doing is we're trying to reduce delays in itself. And reducing um, the delays on ourselves and putting less strain on, on public transport services and leaving those services for those who need it more. So I think really a key takeaway point to the last two news stories we can say is that it might now, might now, now might be a good time to buy a road bike, start cycling. I know we have a few keen cyclists in the team here. 
myself not included. But um, I think that this might be something that we can all try and try and have a go at this summer. Thank you for that, um, the cream. Um, let's hope you're not walking back from Germany to London because that in itself would be quite a uh, a uh, challenge. Uh, but uh, it is something which people are considering. Um, you know, a lot of train strikes are taking place. Um, it's disrupt- disrupting the system, and we can only uh, be confused as who's going to win at the end of this day. At, at the end of the day, because um, the government are not budging and the unions are not budging, so there is no middle ground to this day. And uh, more strikes are being lined up. As far as I know, there's strikes at the end of this month. There will be strikes in September. Uh, so, and the strikes th- uh, today, actually. Sorry, I just realised. So, um, it is. Um, it is a difficult situation we are in uh, where it requires uh, some time for this uh, to resolve. Uh, and in the current economic climate that we are in, uh, it, it, uh, with the rising cost and uh, everyone being squeezed, things like this uh, are inevitable. Um, now, the differing of opinions is how do you let this happen? Some may say, the government need to take action and others may say you need to let the market do the talking uh, and both sense uh, both camps uh, do not agree on the s- solution so we're going to have to wait and see how this goes forward um, it's interesting to see whilst of course uh, in this country uh, we do have a government it is at the moment sort of ineffective uh, per se you can say uh, because we don't have a prime minister uh, who will be again uh, I believe it's the second of September. We will find out when the prime minister, who the prime minister is, between Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss. So fifth uh, of September. Oh, fifth of September. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so there is still some time uh, before we find out who the um, who the new prime minister will be, because it, it, <laughs> because whenever he or she comes, it will be one heck of a job. Uh, you got the living crisis. You got the war in Ukraine. You got internal problems such as the. Uh, uh, the train strikes with the unions, um, BA have been striking as well. So um, there's been strikes all over the place, and um, the, the the criminal barristers have also been striking. Um, so it really uh, questions you uh, what is happening uh, today in this world. But uh, don't worry, uh, as Muslims, we of course turn uh, turn towards uh, God Almighty when stuff like this happens. But of course, there are some practical solutions placed uh, where you can save money, uh, and if you just um, Google it online, uh, and even some practical steps, which the uh, cream and Nusha mention is of course uh, buying a bike. Of course, is uh, you got to expense it a bit, but uh, long term you will. Uh, save a bit more. It doesn't have to be one of those really nice bikes. Carbon bikes it can be just a normal road bike or mountain bike or hybrid bike, whatever type of bike you want, and that will get the job doing. But again, just to remind uh, the listeners, if you do want to take part in the conversation today, you can do so by calling us on o two o eight six eight seven seven eight seven or tweet us uh, on Voice of Islam UK. That is our Twitter handle. Uh, on Twitter. So let's just take again another short break. Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to Saturday Morning Live. You're enjoying myself, Omar Bhatti, and my co host, Noshwan Zafra, in the studio. studio. And with us remotely, we have Hamad Khan, uh, Rohan Najima, and Takrim Malik. We've just uh, finished speaking about two of our uh, two parts of our show, uh, which of course took an hour. Uh, it was around um, 
the Jalsa, the Jalsa Solana, which is, um, I'm saying it with an accent for some reason. Uh, 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 once you go to the Jalsa and then you are trying to communicate with the uh, press and media people, you know, you sort of got to put an accent on for them so they understand what it is, you know. So really, um, I'm not sure where I'm getting this from. Well, I do know where I'm getting from, but I don't know why, why I'm continuing with this. But yes, the, the, the Jalsa Solana, which is the Ahmadiyya's, um, Ahmadi Muslim communities. Um, flagship event it ha- of course it happens throughout the uh, other countries uh, wherever they may be but the one that the UK is looked at uh, because this is where the Caliph uh, Caliph Hazim Zama the fifth Caliph of the Ahmadi Muslim community resides and it really is the uh, flagship event of um, the community and then we of course went through a few um, uh, news stories as well uh, ranging from uh, strikes to Salman Rushdie of course and the drought as well so that was uh, that and now we have uh, another sort of topic lined up for you about the Commonwealth um, oh, interesting to see where we're going to take this so Nushman going to hand this over to you for this one thanks so much so I thought given uh, we the we had the Commonwealth Games concluding in Birmingham uh, this week might be a good idea just to talk a little bit about that I know there was um, an down here in London, perhaps there wasn't such a big hoo-ha made about it. Uh, I know London always is critiqued as being very sort of self-centred. Uh, the fact that sort of the UK's second city hosted this significant event. I thought I thought this is probably something we should talk about this week. Um, so the Commonwealth Games really, just a bit of background, I guess. Much like the Olympic Games, they take place once every four years. There's multiple sports taking uh uh, multiple sporting events that that, that are included you know, in these games, um, uh, and it's it's open to to any member of of the Commonwealth of Nations, commonly referred to simply as the Commonwealth, um, and and so I think while, while we weren't planning to to necessarily discuss the games themselves so much, it just it raised an interesting sort of question in our heads. Actually, what is the Commonwealth? Where where's it come from? What is its purpose? All right, so. According uh, to to definition I found here on the internet, so the Commonwealth of Nations, um, it's a political association. It has 56 member states, the vast majority of which are former territories of the British Empire. So that straight away I've learned something because I, I automatically assumed all of these countries were, were formerly British colonies. Um, and so uh, what we're seeing really is we've, we've got a set of games for these countries from the Commonwealth. Um, and just wanted to sort of have, I guess, this discussion of what is the Commonwealth seeking to achieve, and maybe a slightly more sort of uh, razor razor tipped question. But is is the Commonwealth almost a means of trying to exonerate the British for what they did as colonial masters across uh, many centuries across the globe? Um, uh, and again, sort of, we're not here to sort of make our minds up. As and we've come into to this discussion sort of with a completely open mind. Uh, I personally don't actually have an opinion on this at the moment. As in, I've I've got points for and against the benefits and obviously the 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 drawbacks of of the British colonial era. Um, but but of course, let, let's have that discussion, gents. And obviously, let's see see where we go. And uh, I, if uh, any of our listeners have got a view on this we'd love for you to to be able to, to to take part in this conversation and they can of course take part by calling us on 0208 or tweet us at voice of islam uk
Thanks for that, Omar. So, yeah, so let's get into this. So, so, so the Commonwealth really dates back to the first half of the 20th century. So decolonization of the empire was, was taking place through, through allowing former colonies the right to, to self-govern. Um, so obviously, namely, there were, the, there were many countries uh, throughout the African continent. There were many countries sort of throughout Southern Asia as well um, and the Middle East that, that were formerly under, under British rule that, that were slowly gaining their independence from, from the British and, and regaining the ability to self-rule. Um, namely, sort of, I guess, I think everyone's familiar with some of, two, two of the largest sort of, uh, uh, sort of uh, countries that, that have come out of British rule and by biggest, I don't necessarily mean by population, although one of them probably is. Um, but in terms of the impact they've had on, on the globe uh, since then, obviously, the first one uh, would be Palestine and obviously uh, what's gone into that. And again, I, I don't think we're going to discuss that too much today because I think that's a rabbit hole we can get down into as well. Um, but of course, uh, as I'm sure everyone's aware, uh, the repercussions of, of the way Palestine was sort of uh, given back or, or, or split up really uh is still a bone of contention uh, in that part of the world um, the other of course is India so India gained its uh, right to independence 75 years ago now uh, this month actually um, and in 1947 uh, the largest human migration of people took place uh, where when uh, India was partitioned into West and East Pakistan uh, and again no idea why I'm saying that with an accent I'm just looking at Omar and he's giving me the accent there. Um, so yeah, East and West Pakistan were, were formed um, either side of India. Um, millions of people obviously uh, were were moved as a result of that that migration. Uh, so so for our listeners who perhaps aren't aware, so India hi- historically has got a massively vibrant and massively diverse history, sort of housing dozens, if not hundreds, of of uh, sort of cultures and languages. Uh, as well as a, a wide range of beliefs and religions uh, amongst its people um, and for many years I- India uh, up until relatively recently actually um, uh, India has traditionally be, been seen as, as a very tolerant uh, and sort of uh, open society that has respected the rights of its citizens whether or not they believe uh, in the same beliefs as, as whatever the government may, may, may represent at the time um, obviously, uh, unfortunately, we're seeing things things are not quite so bright at the moment in India. Um, and again, that's probably a discussion for another day. Um, but what what I want to ask really is, firstly, what was the purpose of the British Empire? And again, sort of gents, if, if you've got any views on this, please feel free to jump in. Um, but, but firstly, it was a case of the British Empire. How was it allowed to expand to... To, to such a size that that it did get to, and um, and B, was there anything to it beyond financial benefits for those responsible? Um, uh, and then perhaps let's discuss a little bit about obviously what this meant for the people um, in the various countries the British came to rule. Um, and then obviously have we have the British left a lasting impact on on those nations? Uh, and potentially, is the Commonwealth a way of trying to leave a positive legacy just to cover up sort of previous actions, or is it actually a genuine uh, force for good? Um, answers on a postcard, please. Yeah, um, I think um, it's quite a um, 
quite uh, topical right now, of course, isn't it? Um, the queen, uh, the royal, the royal family, of course, went to the Caribbean nations uh, a couple of months ago to try and brighten up their uh, their image in, in in that region. Because, as you mentioned, there's quite a few um, Caribbean nations who want to remove the queen as the head of state, and uh, they want to leave uh, leave basically. And there are, of course, thirteen countries who have the queen as their head of state still. And uh, fifteen. Fifteen. Oh, okay, yeah. uh, the article I read said thirteen. So. In any case, fifteen um, uh, countries. So it, it it is a bit of a different um, sort of um, um, how do you say it? Um, a, way, a, bit, a bit a bit of a um, having someone at the queen as a, a royal family as the head of state, and then having someone else govern it. Uh, it, it does feel a bit different uh, to many many people. But of course, uh, if we look around the world, um, uh, the republics are forming. So in that, uh, uh, so in that uh, instance, uh, we can say that it, it is quite a different sort of uh, f- a thought uh, to have uh, the queen who lives in England to be the head of state when it's really politically um, uh, not uh, viable to have someone like that because. Um, you know, you're not you're not with the people. You don't know what is happening locally or nationally of that country, uh, and so re- uh, it does. You know, you, you do question uh, what is really the point of having the monarchy there if you're not going to be interested. Of course, I'm I'm sure uh, from there, you, you know, they have a budget. You get a bit of a budget of the money from it, uh, which of course we can have a quick look around it. But uh, for me, from the outside, you, you, you don't really see any, uh, much much. Um, positives from having the queen as the head of state. Yeah, so from from my perspective, and and again, if if uh, so, someone knows better than than me, then uh, Hamad Rahan uh, Takrim, feel free to to chip in. But um, from my perspective, what I'm seeing is there's a lot of country who have kept the queen as head of state, which is all well and good. But the Commonwealth doesn't necessarily offer them anything in terms of it's a political alliance, but it doesn't necessarily open up trade deals, uh, i.e., a, a, a tangible benefit for for the Commonwealth nations. Not not in a not in a blanket sense. Obviously, we have a trade deal uh, potentially with like Canada, f- for example. But then other countries like Kenya, what have we got with them? Or South Africa? South Africa is in the Commonwealth, isn't it? I'm not sure, but anyway. Um, I, I'll have to check that one. But yeah, so point being, right, that we have seem to have different varying types of relationships with various members of the Commonwealth. So it doesn't seem that, that there are any blanket benefits to membership in it. And, and what that kind of got me thinking is, um, to put it in a very tactful way as much as I can, are all members of the Commonwealth treated as equals by the British or have we got a bit of a race issue? I don't necessarily want to use the word, but there is a big white elephant in the room here, isn't there? That certain countries, namely Canada, Australia and New Zealand, seem to have a very different relationship with the UK compared to the likes of India, Nigeria or Kenya. That is true. That is true. I think the cream wants to come in on so- something as well. So the cream. Yeah. So um, I was having a, a look around the topic earlier, and I was looking at some uh, articles, and I found this uh, very interesting article, which was very strongly natured in its uh, content. 
essentially argued that the Commonwealth should be abolished because it's an outdated legacy uh, of the British Empire, and it really has no purpose other than to honour Britain. And that got me thinking here that, you know, I'm not too sure what the Commonwealth is and what it does, so I had to look into it. And from what it does seem, it does seem that uh, the Commonwealth has no, like Noshi said, uh, practical effects to it. Um, as in, there's no trade privileges, um, there's no defence or foreign policy coordination, um, and they don't really have the budget or the executive authority to kind of make a difference in the world. Um, and uh, the meetings that are held between the head of government are much more like discussions, and there doesn't seem to be practical benefit to this. And like Noshi was saying earlier, um, the trade deals are in place in certain countries, they're not done on the basis of them being part of the Commonwealth, they're done on the basis of individual relationships with those countries, um, if I'm not mistaken. And so therefore, that does beg the question, you know, what is the Commonwealth? And this article was arguing that actually the Commonwealth is essentially the British trying to re retain the spirit of the British Empire, um, which was again founded upon, you know, not ideal quality such as slavery, colonial aggression, exploitation and that kind of stuff. And it's a way of kind of Britain to uphold its honour um, uh, through this outdated system. Now, that is not necessarily what I think. This is just the opinion of the article that I was reading. But I did think this was an interesting article, because especially this was, I believe it was uh, written by somebody in the Caribbean. And so for me, this was perhaps uh, an opinion of somebody living in the Commonwealth, outside of the UK, and how they viewed their relationship with the UK. And they give the example of the recent visit of Prince William and Princess Kate to uh, the Caribbean. And there were certain images of Kate and William sitting on a throne being carried by uh, a few of the natives. Um, and the caption being William at the British th throne being worshipped in Nauru by modern slaves. And so that was quite an incendiary um, picture. And that picture kind of was used to show that actually this is what the UK wants and this is what the, the British Commonwealth is. And this is not what we want at all. Um, and anyway, I just thought I'd like to share that with you guys, just to, just to, you know, show that perhaps there are some people, I don't know if there's a lot of people, I don't know if there's a, a small minority of people in the Commonwealth that do think that, you know, it's, right now it's time to abolish, abolish the Commonwealth. Also, uh, the, the question that Nosha just uh, raised, I think, about certain relationships, uh, certain countries having different relationships with the Commonwealth, with the UK. I believe Australia, Britain, Canada, India, New Zealand, South Africa... Um, were the only members by 1948, I think. Um, and so perhaps it could be that because they were founding members, because they were early members, they may be conferred certain um, certain benefits and so on and so forth. Um, that may be one of the reasons why, but I thought that might, I might throw that out there. Yeah, and I think there's an interesting uh, quote also given as to what is the importance of really uh, the Commonwealth and in the former, the words of the former Ugandan uh, foreign minister, uh, Martin Alika, um, he said that the beauty of the Commonwealth is that when mem when the beauty of the the Commonwealth is that its members feel that they can approach each other when serious tension arises between them. So it really, uh, just like other uh, groups, there are you know the United Nations, the uh, uh, and other nations which aren't for some reason coming into my mind it really does play sort of like a political role for them to be a group uh, although mainly focused in African countries and uh, where of course the the British had rule over them it uh, seems to give them a voice um, and helps them uh, lobby for major donors and you know and 
strengthen their ties with diplomatic players like uh, the UK, India and Canada. So in that sense, um, it, it does help having a, a, a sort of group where um, some of the poorer nations can come together with the wealthier and mightier nations uh, and um, make uh, a, a strong tie with them. Yeah, so it's 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 always an interesting one, isn't it? Sort of just just to look at these sort of peculiarities because I'm just thinking, as in, no matter how much we try and sort of find those tangible benefits, we're not finding them. Not through the Commonwealth, we're finding that individual countries are getting their specific uh, sort of benefits out of these relationships on a case by case basis. Um, I'll give you an example. So I, I'm a Canadian citizen. Uh, I can vote in the UK under the, the, the reasoning that Canada is a Commonwealth nation. I know that the, there are people from other Commonwealth nations who can vote in the UK, but there are people from certain Commonwealth nations who have told me they're not eligible to vote in this country at all, despite being permanent residents. Um, so... Again, we're talking about on a day-to-day basis as well, not just sort of on a national level, but in terms of people, if they travel from throughout the Commonwealth to get into the UK, what is their life like when they get here? Now, for me as a Canadian citizen, I've got, in, in, in practice, I'm effectively a British citizen minus the British passport, as in whatever rights a British citizen has, whether that be to access the NHS, whether that be access to to the benefit system if they ever need it, uh, being able to go out and work, uh, whatever it might be, I've got access to all of that, just like any other British person out there does. Uh, the only difference being my passport was, was is black and yours is blue, pretty much. Um, but obviously, if you talk to certain people from certain countries, um, they're, they're, they're also held from, from the Commonwealth you'll find that they don't necessarily have the same rights. They potentially face significant challenges to enter the UK just as the beginning of their journey. And then when they got here, they were told uh, that you, you're going to have to go through certain restrictions. And I understand, of course, that's part, a standard part of our immigration policy that in terms of people who come in, and, and don't get me wrong, even as a Canadian citizen, I came here as a child, so obviously I wouldn't have had to face that. But... But if you were to come across from another country, you cannot access, for example, the public funds for the first few years of because otherwise everyone would travel to foreign countries to access their foreign funds, whether that's for healthcare, education or whatever else it is, and then go back to where they've come from. Um, but once they've sort of p- passed through those hoops, even after that, they're, they're told that they've got certain restrictions placed on them. Um, that that don't necessarily exist for people who are here permanently. And so the question um i've just got really is is like like the cream raised is the commonwealth effectively a feel good thing for the british so that they don't feel guilty for the sins of their predecessors in terms of the oppression and the slavery and 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 all that other negative uh stuff that that that, that did take place for for hundreds of years dur- during the uh, uh empire days that's that is an interesting point uh, because really um over the past few months of course as i mentioned before there are nations trying to get out of the commonwealth or at least trying to get rid 
of uh, trying to become a republic in itself as well. And there's a report that I'm reading that, of course, that the Commonwealth um, has um, made um, made uh, positives, uh, uh, positive uh, voice uh, for for uh, people such as. Um, it, uh, you know, um, there was this uh, discriminatory uh, racial. Uh, it was. It has led the role in uh, racial discrimination in the nineties and nineteen uh, sixties and seventies, uh, most notably with the Singapore Declaration of Commonwealth Principles of nineteen seventy one, and also throughout the nineteen eighties and nineteen nineties, uh, its campaign for uh, debt relief for some of the poorest nations has helped uh, uh, poorer nations in the within the Commonwealth to. Uh, keep afloat, uh, pretty much, and uh, with the fresh technologies coming, uh, it, it it will really open up more opportunities for um, for Commonwealth uh, for the Commonwealth nations to uh, try and make a positive change. Now, um, of course, um, the co- uh, we, we keep uh, talking about the Commonwealth, and of course, there is some. Uh, ugly history towards it, which uh, which was mentioned, and uh, you do look at why um, wh- wh- why that is, uh, and uh, but the ultimate goal of it, of course, we think is of course is 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 a political aim to try and get the, uh, those nations back on on their feet. But it seems like uh, every time that does happen, it, it, it fails, and it has failed in uh, in some some voices uh, because. Um, if we if we look at uh, the um uh, uh there was a um uh, Ugandan president who was still clinging on power uh, even though uh, uh, even though there was a huge deeply flawed electoral uh, process which was uh, back in 2021 uh Yuri Museveni uh, Museveni uh, who clung uh, to power uh, and c- kept on cl- uh, cl- uh, cl- Hanging on to power, and there's also been huge um, charters adopted uh, in terms of justice, democracy, and human rights. But those are not being adopted within the Commonwealth properly. So you do s- seem to look at whether is this really something uh, people just want to be part of because you know it, it makes them look good, or do they actually want to take proper and meaningful action uh, within within the, within the, within it? So really, um, it does question you but if we look at from a sporting side it brings along a huge raw uh, raw, huge talent uh, raw talent which uh, people want to be part of it it sort of boosts uh, as a mini olympics you can say for the commonwealth uh, players uh, where you know you're able to um, uh, you're able to come together as different nations but still win some sort of medals uh, for them and um it gives you sort of a practice as well, and the Commonwealth is looked uh, is highly regarded within sports, although it's only sort of invitational towards those who are um, are part of the nation. Yeah, no, that 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 is right, actually. To be fair, um, and and I think sort of on top of that, that it's quite easy to be harsh given the history of of the British Empire and obviously what happened during that period. But as as you've mentioned, there are charters. And agreements in place that hold member states to account in terms of they must adopt certain principles um, and also there have been countries that have been suspended for, from the Commonwealth for failing to adhere to those standards so that's not like a permanent expulsion but it's very much a case of 
we're kicking you out the club until sort of you get your act together and then you can come back once you've learned that that this isn't this isn't who we are and what we stand for but i think rahan's got something he wanted to add into that rahan over to you um i think we've mentioned a lot about the history and the uh, the requirement or need of the commonwealth but those are very very important things i think i just wanted to reiterate some of the facts um, around this uh, including the point that Nashe, like you said, it's, it's uh, often surprising or we don't realize the fact that not all the countries which are part of the Commonwealth were actually part of the British Empire before. Um, and you might think that the Commonwealth is now outdated and there's not much need or purpose to it, and, but there are still countries who join the Commonwealth. In fact, less than two months ago, both Togo and Gabon, who were French colonies at one point, joined the Commonwealth themselves. Um, and it's not necessary for a Commonwealth country to have the Queen as the head of state. In fact, out of the 56 nations, only 15 have currently the Queen as the head of state. We have five countries who have their own monarchs, and 36 are regarded as republics. And a lot of people that don't want the Queen as the head of state anymore, for example, Barbados, as we discussed, they don't leave the Commonwealth, but they just uh, remove the Queen as head of state and become a republic themselves. Um, and there have been several revamps and changes around the Commonwealth as well um, since its initiation around 1926 is when it started. So this is a time when the British Empire was starting to face a lot of troubles, dissension, revolt, um, people wanted to more independence and their own voice. Um, but Britain, in a sense, still wanted to keep a lot of those relationships, the trade, etc., and the benefits that they were having from the empire. So they decided to come up with a Commonwealth, which meant that all the countries were free to run themselves, but the UK, the Britain and the Queen, the monarchy, I mean, were still in charge and leading. And since then, there's been um, some changes as well. After the uh, partition of India, India definitely did not want influence from the monarchy and the British Empire um, in their country, but they still wanted to be part of the Commonwealth. So there was some change of the policies and the way things run um, at that point. But I was still trying to find out what is the benefit and what is the purpose behind this? So I find out, so what I was reading, I saw that the biggest benefit that we've seen from the Commonwealth so far was during World War One and World War II. Um, and the fact that if it wasn't for these united countries who all pretty much, nearly all pretty much, um, supplied troops, um, even if they wanted one part of the war, for example, a part of Ireland, Ire, um, it counted, it regarded itself as being neutral part of the war. But the soldiers of that nation still wanted to fight because it saw that the rest of the Commonwealth nations are fighting. And for that reason, that is why we were able to stand against the Axis and the Allies um, because we were united on that front. And then that brings me on to my final point is that, of course, we like to talk about Islam in regards to every single topic we discuss. So the reason why people are still part of the Commonwealth is because part of that united identity that unity and knowing that you are part of something and obviously um, strength comes with unity and that's something that Islam puts a lot of emphasis on as well um, it removes the differences of nations of colours of our backgrounds and unites us on a common ideology and I think this is the purpose of why the Commonwealth still runs to this day and age Thank you for that Rohan and we'll take another short break with that final comment and uh, come back for our last topic which is around the living and cost crisis so come back after a short break. So is the Ahmadiyya Khilafat a dictatorship? The simple answer is no, it is not a dictatorship. 
This question can be raised by two types of people. You've got one who are religious and those who are irreligious. If it's the religious people who are raising this question, then this question or this allegation simply backfires to any other prophet who ever existed and any of their successors because our system of Khilafat is no different to the divine leadership that they followed. When irreligious people ask this question, then it should be understood and it should be explained that when we talk about organized religion, unfortunately, there is this impression around the world that in an organized religion, you don't have the freedom to do what you want. You have to follow certain rules and regulations and um, you're, you're bound by a lot of uh, laws. And when a leader comes into the equation, it becomes even more, you know, uh, something to worry about. So to such irreligious people, it should be made clear that when we accept the Khalifa, we do so willingly. When we perform the pledge of obedience to the Khalifa al-Masih, we're not only pledging our obedience to Khalifa al-Masih, but in fact, it's actually pledging our obedience to God Almighty. And we do so willingly. There is no coercion and there cannot be any coercion in that sort of a pledge that you make. Now, another thing that needs to be borne in mind is that a dictator is someone whose say and want and desire, it goes without any question. No one can challenge it. No one questions it. And uh, people tend to accept it as it is. And the dictator does not allow anyone to give suggestions or proposals. But we see the Ahmadiyya Khilafat to follow the very basic Islamic injunction, which is to uh, consult them in important matters or the other in uh, Quranic verse, which uh, says that whose affairs are dealt with through mutual consultation. This verse is a description of the believers. And we find that Hazrat Khalifa al-Masih, he consults various administrative bodies when making important decisions to do with the administration of the community or matters to do with faith itself. Now, the Holy Quran is complete. The Islamic teachings are complete and perfect. They don't require any further addition. But the reason we have a Khilafat is because the implementation of Islamic teachings in every passing day requires some form of interpretation. So whether we're talking about the era of social media, the era of the internet, or the era that we uh, are experiencing nowadays, which is a global pandemic, we require some form of interpretation and direction in implementation. And that we get from the divinely guided leadership of Khalifa al-Masih. A dictator tends not to keep a close bond with their followers. They don't tend to keep a very close tie with their subjects. But the Khalifa al-Masih has a very close and personal relationship with each and every Ahmadi Muslim around the world. The Khalifa al-Masih writes to his followers. The Khalifa al-Masih meets with his followers almost on a daily basis. And this is something which the Khalifa does to ensure that his followers are well and that they're pursuing the highest goals possible in every sphere of life. So is the Ahmadiyya Khilafat a dictatorship? The answer is no, it is not a dictatorship. It is far from such a thing. The Ahmadiyya Khilafat is such a leadership which the world is very unfamiliar with because there is no equivalent that can be drawn or parallel that can be drawn to it in the world that we know today. But the Ahmadiyya Khilafat is something that the world is in desperate need of. You're listening to Voice of Islam, online, on mobile, and on DAB. Welcome back to Saturday Morning Live. Uh, you're joined by me, Noshi Zafar, uh, taking over the show for the last half hour of our, of, of the show. And uh, we're moving on to our final half hour segment now, uh, which is about the ongoing cost of living crisis. And I think Hamad, uh, We'll start off with you. Um, take it away. To capture, uh, as I talk, talk about this cost of living crisis, the 
the depths and the measurements and the metrics that we're seeing, because even now when I've got it collated in front of me, it is quite breathtaking. So um, I'm taking this from a particular news article, but every day there are some more bleaker uh, new, uh, forecasts and measurements about the true depth of the cost of living crisis that we're currently facing and we're projected to face in the coming months. So a few we- uh, last week it, there was a news about the energy price cap, which is a misnomer because it should have stayed within the limits, but the energy price cap is set to rocket to £3,359 from October. And this week there was also an estimate that put out that by January the energy price cap is going to reach to £4,266. Then the Bank of England announced the biggest interest rate hike in 27 years. And again this week, there was another warning of the disastrous consequences of this crisis with a report that estimated that 35 million people in this country will be in fuel poverty by the end of the year due to the increase in oil prices. So this is really the backdrop of the the standards of living that we're facing in this country. Uh, there's one particular newspaper that is um, repeatedly putting out a column called Heat or Eat Diaries, um, listening to stories of parents in particular who can't put food on the table or private renters struggling to keep a roof over their heads. Um, elderly people in particular are now more terrified of facing the winter with no money to pay their bills, particularly their electricity and gas. And this is really you know an interesting thing because it's also in stark disparity to uh, the multinational corporations that have uh, reported skyrocketing profits so uh, BP and Shell have announced nearly 50 billion pounds in profits within last year Uh, these are the oil giants and then the last time Last year, sorry, last year, Sunday Times Rich List revealed that Britain is now home to more billionaires than ever. So last year, there was, I think, a 24-person increase in the billionaire list. And meanwhile, the banker bonuses have reached record levels um, not seen since the 2008 financial crisis. So what we're seeing is a cost of living crisis for the many, but uh, benefits for the few. And there's this concentration of wealth and inequality um, and it's really going to have drastic effects, not just on, uh, you know, disposable income and leisures that we have to cut down. There's going to be vast indignities that people are facing, indignities such as not being able to afford shelter, food, indignities such as going to the food bank. Um, there's record levels of food banks in this country now. There's going to be indignities of people being unable to provide for their children, unable to even carry on working. There will be a vast unemployment crisis also. There's projections of that as well. There's a 4.4% uh, fall in income. Um, that, that's just on average. So it's not speaking to the people who have been unemployed. It's not speaking to those who have experienced a vaster um, decrease in their income and household. And it's The worrying thing here is the effects that it's going to have on people's health, mental health, um, and the material standards of living that people are going to experience within the coming months. There have been narratives about, and it's really interesting to see, because when I, even now, I'm not particularly politically in tuned or economically minded, but if you are to, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this as well, Noshi and um, Takreem and Rahan, that, you know, when you do read the newspaper reports, it almost seems like a natural phenomenon that the idea of people going poorer is almost um, inevitable, that uh, only this certain political class or only a particular uh, group of people experiencing profits is just natural. 
but I mean, I I've I remember studying um, health inequalities in one of my modules for my masters, and I it's just alarming. So last year, China was able to eradicate extreme poverty, and the thing that I took away from that is that actually poverty is policy. It's not a natural phenomenon of life. It's just that we choose through our economic and political measures. And people are saying that through um, a decade of austerity cuts, this is just a natural symptom of that, um, that this is what you get. So poverty is not necessarily considered to be natural, but the way that it's presented, the way that it's written about, the way that our politicians go about bringing certain measures um, is almost as if they're helpless in saying that this is a natural phenomenon that we're experiencing. This is the way of life. Um, sort of thing, but uh, it's my personal view that poverty is actually political policy, and we have the case of China in particular. Um, they said that they reported last year, and again, this is in the backdrop of just reeling from the uh, global pandemic, that nearly 100 million people were lifted out of the poverty, uh, out of poverty in China. Um, that included um, nine, nine, 98 million poor um, uh, people um, from the rural populations and um, 832 poverty-stricken counties in China. And there were some, of course, Western um, analysts who were quite sceptical of this, um, despite the fact there was no reason to be sceptical. And in fact, China measures extreme poverty at a higher threshold. So if you earn $1.69 uh, um, per day or less, then you're at extreme poverty, whereas the World Bank defines um, extreme poverty as... Um, Sorry, it's the wrong way around, but the World Bank defines extreme poverty as $1.90. Um, but nonetheless, China still reported this huge move, and it just begs to question what are the sort of radical shifts and the radical measures that we need to take um, to move ourselves out of this crisis, because it doesn't seem that it's natural. And so, so Noshi, I'd love to get your thoughts on, you know, what, what do you think about the cost of doing crisis? What have you seen and heard, and what do you think about the current measures in particular well, are there any current measures that you think are appropriate? Yeah, no, that's it's it's a really interesting conversation, isn't it? Because, like like you've mentioned, unfortunately, there's there's a huge number of people who are going to face very very difficult decisions, or already facing them now. Um, a significant number of people are sadly going through uh, potentially even sort of undignified choices to make, whether that's sort of that uh, heat versus eat. Um, a dilemma that that people are having and meanwhile we see people sort of in in the top maybe not one percent but in the top sort of 10 15 20 percent of, of society sort of just almost potentially unaffected as in they're like well i've got less spare money as opposed to having any day-to-day -day issues and there is definitely a class divide that that if it hasn't if it hasn't been forming for the last sort of 10 or 15 years since since the last major financial crisis very much is coming to a head now anyway um and and i think we need to be doing something and 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 by we i, I really am sort of calling upon the government here again i know uh, we usually say it's the government's responsibility for x y or z but when you have a multitude of issues and, and they're complexly intertwined with each other, it very much becomes a governmental issue when you've got potentially millions of households facing these really life or death decisions to be making this year. Um, uh, and in this case, it's it, it can be quite easy for, for those who are comfortable enough to just be like, oh, ask for a pay rise or cut back on a Netflix subscription or, or whatever 
I've heard some pretty uh, pretty out of touch things uh, from people, but but that doesn't necessarily change the reality for a lot of people who are left with just maybe uh, sort of hundred hundred and fifty pounds a week uh, to feed themselves and their families, um, and pay the electric and pay the gas and pay for fuel in the car. It's it's just an unwinnable situation for many, unfortunately, isn't it? But um, I think the Green, you've got a, a point um, that that you wanted to share. So uh... yeah, Zakhir um, Moshe, it's actually regarding something that um, Hamad mentioned earlier, regarding the heat heat diaries. I think they're called um, on the Guardian website. And actually, I was reading this the other day, and it really, really made me emotional. I'd say, and it really put into context almost the cost of living crisis because sometimes it's very easy to hear numbers such as this much money in debt. And, you know, £4,200, £3,600. I'm lucky to be living at home at the minute where my parents pay the bills in the summer holidays. Um, and so, you know, I don't really know what that means in terms of, in real life, what does a difference of £600 or £1,000 a year actually mean? And so sometimes it's very easy for us to, for these things to kind of go over, go over our heads. And for us to get bogged down in big numbers and say, you know, you know what's the difference between giving a £5 billion in in new policies to help the, the, the poor people or six billion, you know, what is, what does one billion make a difference and so on and so forth. But actually these diaries are so very, very personal and so very, very relevant that really, really touches you. For example, I was reading this diary by uh, so I think someone called Paul Northwind, the name was changed, who was inside of Seeker. And this really resonated with me for a number of reasons, you know, firstly, the background itself, my father came to his country as an asylum seeker, um, you know, seeking refuge from persecution in Pakistan um, and we were lucky enough to come, you know, a year or so later and not have to go through that process. But he went through the process himself and, you know, it was very, a very hard time for him. And the this story describes how, you know, this person, this uh, Paul, he, for example, one thing to mention is that he can't, he can't just get on a bus or train. He can't just stop off in a cafe. He can't buy a drink when he's thirsty or an ice cream when it's hot. Or he can't even get a meal deal for £3.50 because he's only allowed two pounds every meal. And the reason being that because him and his wife have to live off 41 pounds a week. And so in the reading that I, I thought about yesterday when I went to work at the pharmacy and I bought meal deal for three pound 50, I didn't even think about what I was paying, you know. For me, three pound 50 is, is an insignificant amount of money almost. And that's not because I'm wealthy or anything. That's just because and that's the, the last one I'm used to. Um, and so that really made me stop and think that really there's there's people out there and there's people being affected by this crisis who already before this crisis can't afford a meal deal or can't afford to just, you know, spend money on buying an ice cream, for example, because of their weekly budget. And what is this cost of living crisis going to do? And further on, this person described how, you know, he quite liked riding bikes. And so he found a couple of bikes that someone was giving away. He cycled them for hours. But now the spokes are broken, he couldn't even afford to go to Halford to fix and I was thinking, you know, how much money have I spent on servicing my bike, getting tires fixed, punctures fixed, that kind of stuff. And I don't even think about what money I'm spending on there. And and so really, it just put into context for me that what does £41 a week, what is the government allowance for that, what does that mean in real terms? And when you think about it this way, this cost of living crisis is going to push so many more people into food banks, into homeless shelters, and affect the lives of so many more people um, than you know, can even, even began to imagine. And so actually, the, the point I was going to make is that this is perhaps a time for self-reflection for us as well. 
and perhaps even giving charity. I remember at the weekend, um, I was in I, I was making a video regarding charity and recession. And we were asking for the views of people who at the convention who, uh, you know, were, were in, we, we said, you know, we're in the recession now, or we're heading towards a recession, we're in a cost living crisis, do you still give money to charity? And every single person said, yes, they do. And when questioned, they said that they believe that actually giving charity was even more important in a recession or in a cost of living crisis because naturally there are more people in need. And therefore, whatever we have, you know, is up to us to give a proportionate amount of us to charity and help our fellow around and help our fellow people. And so that I thought was a very interesting uh, point that can come out of this discussion is that this is now a time for us to reflect and perhaps, you know, make changes to our lives to and help people who are maybe even less fortunate than we are. That's a, that's a really, really good point you make there, Takreem, because I think when when we are faced personally with hardships, it, as humans, it's it's our nature, isn't it, just to, to focus on our own uh, sort of struggle, uh, not necessarily looking at the bigger picture and seeing actually, unless this is a very specific to me situation, particularly in the context of, of this cost of living crisis, in the context of recession, which may or may not already have started, um, that actually there's always somebody who who's doing less well off than you um, and, and sort of remembering that really helps I think to open up your generosity to help those who can do with a bit more um, sort of just, just like yourself again uh, sort of these past few years even I know obviously throughout the COVID pandemic as well there were a, a lot of people who sadly lost their jobs their livelihoods as a result um, and came into financial difficulty because of that as well and and sort of these past few years I've just been thinking as well in, in my own uh, particular circumstances sort of the highs and lows of of my life and I think in our household sort of my parents have been quite open with with what our situation is so I've always sort of and just I've always been in I guess uh an interested child when when I was much younger so always sort of fascinated by what's going on sort of why the grown-ups looking worried or whatever it was um and sort of as I've grown up I've realized yeah there were some times which were pretty rough um but I can say hand on heart with, with sort of no sort of question or doubt about it that by the grace of God we've never been left wanting um and and because of that whenever I'm I'm in a situation where I feel like I've been blessed more than I deserve just like you mentioned yourself it's a case of I always think well what can I do to help somebody else um uh, and and in that situation as well you sort of look into well my circumstances are x today but it's also remembering actually I could very well go back to to a lesser situation tomorrow there's just no certainty so there's a lot of people who I think can almost become complacent saying oh yeah I've got a good job or I've got x y or z means of income today but there's no guarantee it's going to be there tomorrow and if the way prices keep rising as they are currently some of those people I hope not for the, for their sake but but it's entirely plausible that they too could be in a very difficult situation um I was speaking to just a, a colleague of mine just yesterday actually and he he was telling me um at his former company he had some of some of the senior staff were, were earning six figure sums um and a couple of them were made redundant uh, about four or five years ago and 
uh, a lot of them were put in an extremely difficult set of uh, circumstances because these were people who just thought, oh yeah, I'm in a good job uh, and nothing bad could happen to me. And actually, I think one of them even lost his home because people didn't plan for the future and, and were sort of living beyond their means. Now, I guess that's not of much solace to those people who are struggling today. But for those who potentially have got a comfortable life, maybe it's worth having a think that are there luxuries in our life today that potentially we can reduce if if only to be able to share some of that money to, to ease the burden in somebody else's life. Uh, what are your thoughts, gents? I mean, I, I definitely agree with that, Nusha. And it's interesting that you said that, you know, about sharing your wealth because I was in thinking about the changes that need to be made and how Islam informs and tries to protect and prevent from calamities like this happening, and it is really a calamity. Um, it basically recognizes, you know, to just condense its ideology and its principles. One, that, you know, um, all wealth is um, a, a property of all of mankind. Um, it's not just um, of a singular person. Wealth is not individualized to um, a single person's property. It's for everyone to use. In fact, um, a lot of people have rights over one person's wealth. That includes the poor, that includes the orphans. And the second ideology or the, or, or the principle um, in Islamic ideology is that the real master of all wealth is actually God. And therefore, since God has created all, then wealth is for all as well. And it's this idea of sharing wealth. It's this idea of not hoarding un, um, um, beyond what you need. Um, that's the purpose of having zakat, that charity, that sort of um, sort of tax um, that's then used to improve and flourish the needs of society and those beyond you. Um, so that you can actually engage in the society. Because the funny thing is that those that are creating and, um, you know, or be driving, you know, this sort of disparity in wealth and income are also fraying the fabric of society. You're not able to become an agent of society in a society that's collapsed completely, in a society where the economy is no longer working, in a society where no one is able to leave their homes, no one is able to pay for their food or their electricity. The, pur the purpose of being able to be altruistic and charitable is also, is also to uphold a society and, and to be able to engage in that society for your own benefit. Um, of course, there's also spiritual benefits to it as well, but for people that like to think about their own sort of, um, you know, what sort of benefits are within them, are actually posed towards them, it's the idea of upholding a society because once society breaks and once society breaks down, you're not able to engage in that society economically. You're not able to use your wealth. You're not able to accumulate more, your more wealth as well. So it's this very economically sound um, principle of Islam, which is to give to those that need more and to, like you said, to always, uh, you know, just stay beyond, uh, stay within your means and not to spend excessively. Um, and I, I, I think once that ideology can be put um, in multiple measures, in multiple economic measures, including a lot of tax, then this is how we move out the crisis and this is how we prevent another crisis occurring again definitely no that sounds um that sounds very sound advice really um i guess moving the conversation forwards um on onto a slightly different note i think we touched upon it a, a little bit earlier as well and sometimes we hear very disingenuous advice from from those who potentially don't realize the harsh realities of this crisis for many but uh, gentlemen, in, in your personal lives, have you made any adjustments 
uh, around the current situation or are, are there things that you, you're currently sort of planning to make adjustments for? Um, a, a sort of future planning in terms of obviously A, if prices continue going up and B, uh, I just get given a contingency uh, uh, because uh, the Bank of England obviously is now forecasting a recession, a quite quite a long one as well now, that's going to see us through until quarter one of 2024. Um, but yeah, if if there's anything you're doing um, uh, yourselves at home, I'd love to hear more about it. Um, yeah, no, Shay. Um, I think I was I was trying to read on some stuff which is being done on a state level. So governments, um, what are they doing? And I was trying to check across Europe because this is not just something relevant to the UK, but around the world actually. Um, and when energy prices specifically increase across the world. So normally what you do is when you have an inflation and increase in prices, you also increase the interest rates. Um, we're not going to go into the technical um, benefits of why you do this and what, what it does, but when the energy prices increase across the world, then increasing the interest rates is not really beneficial. It won't help as much. Um, but we know that uh, countries across Europe are trying to do things like reducing the energy tax, um, the UK specifically has um, windfall profits tax as well, the retail price regulation, wholesale price regulation, and they've even given a discount of £400 on the energy bill as well, which we heard. But I don't know how much this is going to benefit since every couple of months we are seeing an increase or a difference occurring. And how this is affecting us on a personal level, I don't know about you guys. I think I think the rising energy cost of uh, rising Prices and cost of living um, is something probably that comes up in conversation every single week. That's one thing that's happening at home. And what Hamad mentioned at the start was the effect this is having on people's, not only physical health, but also their mental health. Um, and I think I've personally seen this being the case where I've seen the worry on people's faces about what are we going to do. Um, but there's other smaller things as well. I don't know about you guys, but every time you go to fill up the car now, you are more observant about the prices which you see on the board. And you're also observant about how much you filled in the tank and why the difference from one time you filled it to the next time you filled it. Um, and I think it's things like these which then reduce to the additional stress, the mental stress that you are feeling, you're having, um, because there's not much you can do. And it's just something you accept and adjust to. I think there's also a thing about where I've heard people saying that they're reducing the amount that they use their vehicles to get around, um, trying to use public transport or people trying to invest into bicycles as well now. Um, and using those as their mode of transport, which is going to be the case going forward. Um, and also the drive I've heard around using um, hybrid vehicles, electric vehicles, and how that shift is going to be within the next couple of years. Um, but even things at home, you know, um, there's always been advice given out by government that uh, you should try to implement certain things at home, which helps you reduce your amount of electricity consumption, um, your water usage, et cetera, all that stuff. Um, but it's pretty sad to see that live where we live currently in the West, um, that this has it's gotten to that state where we have to keep these things in mind. And as Malik Bakri mentioned earlier, that you'd think that we'd become less charitable um, in a state like this. But I think when you get to a condition when you start struggling as well, considering that, uh, not sure as you mentioned, we live where somewhere where we are really, really fortunate and we don't usually have to worry about these things. You start becoming more empathetic and understanding of those around you who do not have those things. 
Um, in some of maybe within the UK as well, poverty is still a big issue, but also other nations as well, which who, who go through these ordeals on a daily basis. Um, so I guess in that sense, we've got a benefit of being able to see the issues there and try to help those around us, but also trying to regulate our lifestyles. Um, and reducing our energy consumption, our water consumption is actually all good for the environment anyway. So I guess in that way, we've got some benefits and learnings that we can take up from this as well. Yeah, no. Yeah, thanks for that, Rahan. I think uh, some really good points in there. Um, and again, it's it's just that that realisation of, I think, those, those uh, people who, who are in a relatively comfortable position ought to sort of reflect and be grateful for what they've got um, uh, and obviously uh, sort of think about what they can do to, to perhaps ease the burden for their fellow citizens. Um, we're, we're not expecting individuals to go out and be able to change the world on their own necessarily, but if everyone chips in a little bit, it can make a huge difference to everyone around us. Um, as we're in, uh, coming up to the hour now, so just to wrap up our show, um, so as a recap of what we've discussed today, um, we started by by discussing our JALSA experiences, uh, talked about the various duties and responsibilities we had at the annual convention of the MDM Muslim community last weekend, followed that up by the news, uh, discussion around the Commonwealth, whether it's a force for good or not, and finally we're wrapped up on the cost of living crisis and, and what we can be doing and, and what Islam's stance on this is. So I'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in and we'll be back with you next week on Voice of Islam.